Hello, and welcome back to 15 Minutes of Fascism, a sadly topical podcast covering the global rise of the radical right. I'm Dr. Craig Johnson, bringing to you this week news from the United States, the United Kingdom, France, and a see you in hell from Argentina's past. Starting out with a quick note in the United States, Donald Trump, former president of the United States, is planning to at least potentially attend a conspiracy theory event called Reawaken America. And this is a conspiracy theory, like, traveling show that travels around the United States talking about conspiratorial thinking, uh, which has just been a solid part of Donald Trump's electoral campaigns and pledges down to his past as a longtime birther, uh, which is an ideology you can hear about if you listen to the mini-series that I've been releasing the last couple months on the 100 years of fascism and their history in the world. This is part of solidifying the connections between Trumpism and conspiratorial thinking, and uh, we're just going to have to watch out for this if Donald Trump does indeed attend. Continuing with some more small tidbits, the Prime Minister of the United Kingdom, Boris Johnson, has succeeded in surviving a confidence vote in a parliamentary system his own party, the Conservative Party, is able to oust him from his position if they decide that they don't want him to stay there. Uh, They decided that they did. However, he won by an uncomfortably small margin. He's not in a stable position at all. This leaves the United Kingdom and the Conservatives in specific in a very complicated spot because it means that Johnson might have to shore up one of his flanks on the party. And if he turns further right wing, uh, that could signal a very disturbing shift in United Kingdom politics. Now, continuing on to some other stories, we got two similar stories here, one from the United States and one from France. In the United States, a private in the United States military is going on trial this week. Uh, His name is Meltzer, and he is going on trial this week for planning a massacre of his own unit, an airborne paratroopers unit in the United States military. Uh, He was trying to plan a massacre of his own unit while they were stationed in Turkey, Uh, He was planning this in 2020, and his plan was to start a race war between the United States and the Middle East. You know, he's trying to start another big, huge war, another 10-year-long war, in his words, uh, like the Iraq War. This was because of Meltzer's just blatantly neo-Nazi ideology. He specifically belongs to a family of neo-Nazism called the Order of Nine Angels, or O9A, which is a Satanist strain of neo-Nazism. He admits that he enlisted in the military solely in order to get training and uh, to, you know, participate in military tactical training and to learn how to use firearms and that sort of thing. He has been identified as an enemy of the military by the military itself because of, you know, his plans to try to get his unit massacred. And he's going on trial this week. Similarly, another neo-Nazi plot was discovered this week, this time in France, in the region of Alsace, which is between France and Germany. It's the part of France that France and Germany have been fighting over for, like, arguably a thousand years. Um, The French Gendarmerie, which is the state police of France, uh, arrested four men, all in their 40s and 50s, who were planning to kill Jewish people in Strasbourg, which is the major city in this region of France. They were also found with a major cache of weapons, uh, about 10 guns per individual, uh, 10 guns per neo-Nazi. They also found massive amounts of ammunition, also a lot of gunpowder and other explosive equipment. They have so far only been charged with arms trafficking, 
but it remains to be seen if they're going to be charged with anything else. They were discovered because of the French military and the French gendarmerie's turn towards policing extreme right-wing activity because of an uptick in anti-Semitism in that country recently, which is, of course, unfortunately connected to the extreme success and rise of the right-wing in France over the last several decades. Continuing on to paramilitary organizations in the United States, the most disturbing and threatening of the paramilitaries in the United States, or at least one of them, uh, the Proud Boys, uh, the leaders of them have been charged with seditious conspiracy. They've been charged this week by the Department of Justice for seditious conspiracy. These are specifically the uh, five biggest leaders of the Proud Boys, including their uh, former president, Enrique Tario, who was the president of the organization during the January 6th attempted coup. Now, these charges note that in their group chats uh, as parts of the Ministry for Self-Defense, which is what they call themselves, the sort of like sub-branch of their organization that was planning their involvement in the coup. Uh, it's noting their group chats about insurrection, about rebellion, about changing history, about killing politicians. It's also noting their engagement with other paramilitary organizations that have similarly been charged with sedition and conspiracy, uh, particularly the Oath Keepers and other sort of like patriot-branded organizations. It's noting that specifically they, they obviously planned their participation in the January 6th coup, uh, that they received details about Capitol buildings, uh, buildings in the Capitol Hill area, from a as yet unknown source on the inside of the administration, somewhere at least. Uh, we know that they had contact with other insiders, not just within the Trump White House, but presumably also in Congress, uh, which means that, yeah, they, they've been charged with seditious conspiracy, which is like, you know, they were trying to, they had a, a secret plan to overthrow the government of the United States, uh, which is uh, a much more serious charge than has been brought against uh, essentially any of these right-wing paramilitary organizations connected with the coup so far. This is an escalation from the charges that all of these men face already. Uh, and it is a real serious escalation in the DOJ's fight against these attempted coup plotters. Further on the coup information, we now know uh, from this week, there, there have been some, some releases here, that Vice President Pence and his staff knew uh, that he was in serious mortal danger ahead of the coup. Specifically, we now know that the day before the coup on January 5th, 2021, Pence's chief of staff, who is, you know, the most important person in the vice president's office, uh, his chief of staff called the head of Pence's secret service people. Uh, so this is Pence's top employee calling the leader of Pence's security branch. And he called him in specifically to warn him that the president was going to turn against Pence and that when he did so, Mike Pence's life would be endangered. Now, the fact that this warning was issued by the chief of staff of the vice president about the physical danger that the vice president would experience because of the president, and that we just, we, we have the receipts on this. We, we know that it happened. We know everything about this meeting now. Uh, this means, one, uh, that Pence, everybody else, everybody in his office, they all knew that they had been pressured to keep Trump in office. Now, this is those are details that we already knew, but you know, this is further evidence on that pile. Something that we didn't know already uh, is that we now know that Pence and his office knew that Trump was planning a coup. They knew that they were planning to 
get people to storm the Capitol, or at least do some sort of violent activity that would put Pence in physical danger, right? The reason that he warned, the reason that this chief of staff warned Pence's Secret Service leader was that he knew that Pence was in physical danger, like his life was in danger. This means that Pence and his chief of staff knew that there was a violent coup being planned for the time that Pence was in Congress ratifying the results of the Electoral College count. They knew that the people who were coming in there were willing to capture or kill members of Congress. Uh, Recall that the people at this rally, the people who were walking towards the Capitol building, were chanting, hang Mike Pence. Uh, they They were just like openly chanting this at the time. We had already heard that Donald Trump expressed glee and uh, happiness at hearing this chant. You know, he thought that it meant that he was winning. So this is further and further evidence that they knew what was happening. They knew it was being planned and they didn't tell anybody about it. They didn't get on television and say like, hey, the president is planning a coup. They tried to cover their own asses, uh, which is pretty damning, if you ask me. Continuing on to damning information that is being revealed about the January 6th attempted coup today on Thursday, the January 6th select committee is going to be holding its big public hearings. Now, this is something that they've been hinting about for a very, very long time. I'm recording this episode on Wednesday, the day before. So, you know, they might be releasing information that I will be astonished to hear about and would have loved to have covered in your episode today. Uh, They're trying to plan this sort of to be like Watergate hearings, right? You know, to capture the national information. They're trying to have a big, high-profile expose of Donald Trump and his allies and their involvement in planning this coup. But it remains questionable if people are still paying attention or if people, you know, have the attention span to watch and care about these kinds of hearings in the middle of, you know, what's already an election cycle, dealing with still the coronavirus pandemic, dealing with high inflation, possibility of a recession, all that sort of stuff. We know that the people running the hearings, who are primarily Democrats in the United States House of Representatives, are saying that they're going to be a historic event and that like all sorts of stuff is going to get revealed. But the thing is that we don't really know. It's possible that this is going to be repackaged information, trying to you know make it more palatable and like poppier for people to actually remember. It's possible that they're going to reveal a lot of shit that we didn't in fact know before. What we do know is that, at least at the beginning, they're going to be focusing primarily on paramilitary organizations that were involved in the January 6th coup. Uh, But we also know that they're focusing specifically on things that are like sacrosanct 100% completely proven, as opposed to things that we are like certain occurred but couldn't necessarily prove in court. That makes sense for a congressional hearing and for, you know, this kind of like showing the receipts event. But it does mean that there are some things that we know about the coup that they aren't going to talk about. For example, we know that they're not going to talk about the meeting between the Proud Boys and the Oath Keepers on January 5th, which is, you know, clear evidence that they were planning all of this stuff together and that they, you know, were coordinating this attempted coup the day before. So uh, I'm going to be watching this, uh, unfortunately, eagerly. This is my job. It's a macabre fascination. And I will report on the results of this hearing, you know, what they say uh, next week. Finally, I'm going to close out this episode like I do every week with See You in Hell, a segment celebrating the deaths of prominent right-wing figures in history. This week, I'm talking about José López Rega. 
who is a power behind the throne type from Argentina's history. He is an important man in the history of Argentina's dirty war. Lopez Urega was born in 1916, and he joined the federal police in Argentina, which in Argentina is a branch of the military, in 1944. There, uh, he rose the ranks and became an important person in the um, security branch of the federal police that provides security for the Casa Rosada, which is the equivalent of the White House in the United States or Downing Street in the United Kingdom. It's the sort of presidential palace executive branch headquarters, uh, although the president no longer lives there, in fact. But um, in 1944, and for the remainder of his early years, um, this meant that he was the head of security at the Casa Rosada during the presidency of Juan Perón, who was Argentina's most important first dictator and then president. He became specifically more connected not with Eva Perón, uh, Perón's most famous wife, but with Perón's third wife, the woman he married after Eva Perón died, Isabella Perón. Uh, and he specifically became very connected with her during Perón's exile in Spain. In 1955, Perón was ousted in a coup by the military and went into exile in Spain. And Perón used his wife, Isabella, to, you know, sort of run political events between Spain and Argentina. And it's there that López Rega made this connection with Isabella, which would prove to be his most important political connection in his life. Uh, he gained her trust, and apparently they made connections over some occult stuff, um, which is just kind of silly. Like, it, 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 it means that people have been comparing López Rega to Rasputin for decades, and unfortunately there are some reasons to make this comparison. You know, he's connected to the wife of the leader over occult spiritualist claims, right? At this point, with this connection to Isabella, Lopez Rega was in the inner circle of Peronism, and he was able to use this position and power to join the cabinet of Peron's stand-in, Hector Campora, who ran and won the presidency in 1973 when it was illegal for Peron to run. Uh, after this, Peron comes back, and Lopez Rega remains in the inner circle. Uh, he becomes the Minister of Welfare. Uh, and it's here that he manages to finagle his major turn. And the reason that he's uh, included in this episode, he turns very hard to the right wing. Now, earlier, he and Perón himself had sort of like positioned themselves between the right wing and the left. And López Vega had, in fact, actually been sort of like engaging primarily with the left before this. But he turned hard toward the right wing branch of the Peronist faction and continued to remain in that branch until his death. Lopez Rega was an important part of organizing the Ezeiza massacre, in which right-wing Peronists killed a bunch of left-wing Peronists when Perón came back to Argentina in the 1970s. He continued this role in organizing on the right-wing of Peronism as a key organizer of the AAA, the Alianza Anticomunista Argentina, the Argentine Anti-Communist Alliance, which was one of the first big, terrifying paramilitary organizations in that country that engaged in massive amounts of political violence, specifically targeting the left, journalists, labor organizers, people like that. López Rega finally met his match as the um, president Perón died, leaving Isabella Perón as the president. And, you know, he sort of became like even more powerful at this point, right? He, he is the power behind the throne. You know, he is Isabella's most trusted political confidant, and she is the president. However, 
Isabella was very quickly removed in a military coup, much like her husband had been some, uh, you know, 20 years before, in 1976. And López Rega first follows her to exile in Spain, where, interestingly, Isabella Perón continues to live to this day. Uh, he first followed her to exile in Spain. Uh, he tooled around Europe for a while, some time in Switzerland, before he returned to the Americas, primarily spending time in Miami and the Bahamas. He was eventually arrested in the United States because he was on trial, you know, he was on trial in Argentina, potentially, um, because of all of the crimes that he had committed there as minister, you know, all of these like corruption and murder things that he is that he had engaged in. Uh, he was arrested in the United States and extradited to Argentina after the fall of the military dictatorship in the 1980s. Specifically, he was charged, like I said, with corruption, conspiracy, homicide, this sort of thing. He died this day in history, the 9th of June, 1989, of diabetes in Argentina, awaiting trial for his crimes. So, Jose Lopez Rega, we will see you in hell. All right, that was 15 Minutes of Fascism, a sadly topical podcast covering the global rise of the radical right. I'm Dr. Craig Johnson, thanking Sleepy Kitty Arts and Sleepy Kitty Music for our intro, outro, and graphics. If you enjoyed the podcast, please like, share, and subscribe. Please share with friends, family, colleagues, comrades. Um, if you really like the podcast, check out my Patreon at patreon.com slash 15 minutes of fascism. That's 15 minutes of fascism spelled out and all one word. That's also where you can reach me at Gmail. I'm 15 minutes of fascism at gmail.com. You can also get me on Twitter at hist of the right, H-I-S-T of the right, or fascism 15. Again, that's uh, 15 spelled out and all one word. All right. Thanks. And I'll talk to you next week.